Well, welcome here. Glad that you could join with us today. Um, Yeah, so excited to be able to just continue on with our series in the Minor Prophets, uh, these short little books that have some major things to say to us today. Well, one of the things you've probably heard in the past couple of years is this term being used. It's called cancel culture, right? You've probably, whether or not you've heard that term before, you've probably seen it happening. It's usually referred to when uh, someone, usually a celebrity, gets caught doing something wrong, and it seems like everyone just piles onto them and and just wants to cancel them out, right? So actors or celebrities get caught doing something wrong, and suddenly all of their work is no longer valid, right? So a good example of someone like this is, well, Bill Cosby. Right? If you remember Cosby from sort of the 90s, you probably remember him as being, well, very family friendly, right? Uh, he was a good, clean comedian for, for the most part, at least. However, nowadays, if you hear the name Bill Cosby, a very different picture is in your mind. After all of the, the scandals around sort of the, the sexual abuse that took place during his career, nowadays, there is not one single TV station, or I think there's maybe one station in all the states that would still run his show. He has been very much canceled out of uh, the mainstream. Uh, More recently, someone like Ellen DeGeneres is sort of facing this with, you know, her own uh, abuse issues that have gone on with her staff and things like this. Now, I I don't want to talk about the celebrities, really. I'm more interested in sort of the mindset that's often behind it. Oftentimes, there's, there's a, a very interesting mindset that's going on. Some of it is really good. Some of it, it, I think, we should even support. Things like, you know what, actually, we should be held accountable for our actions, no matter how powerful or, or wealthy you are. That, that character actually matters, not just, you know, someone's talent, who they are, actually makes a difference. Th- those are good things. However, there's also some more, more challenging things that are often behind that. Oftentimes, people aren't so much concerned on on what is true, and they're really just looking for someone to to pile on. People's lives have been ruined because they have been falsely accused of something, and then everyone on social media just seems to, to pile on, and now they can't get a job anymore, right? They're asking to be forgotten by the internet. However, I'm gonna say there's even a bigger danger there than that. The bigger danger is that we have begun to believe that if someone makes a mistake, their life is now ruined beyond any hope of repair. That one mistake can cost someone essentially their, their entire life and there's no hope of any kind of restoration happening. See, I think that's actually a more dangerous mindset and it's easy for us to kind of get drawn into that. No room for forgiveness or grace. But the truth is, how, how many times have we messed up? How many mistakes have you made in your own life? Sure, yours probably maybe weren't as, as big a scale, not, not maybe not so public, but of all of us have been at a point in our lives where we actually needed forgiveness, where we needed mercy for the things that we have done. So how should we treat someone when they have made mistakes? How do we actually work through this? Or maybe we should turn it around and simply ask it this way. What do I do when I make a mistake? When I have sinned, how should I respond? And maybe a big question in there is this. How does God view me? Am I just going to be canceled out by God? 
Well, to answer this question, we're going to look at the book of Zechariah this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. Uh, Zechariah is the second to last book in uh, the Old Testament, so you can go to Matthew and just go back a little bit. But if you're familiar with the book of Zechariah, you'll know it's a very interesting book. And of course, by interesting, I mean confusing, <laughs> right? There, there's a lot of different uh, visions and, and odd stuff that's going on. It's very almost apocalyptic in nature. Or you're, you'll, you'll hear stories or visions about four horsemen. You'll hear about you know, golden lampstands, flying scrolls, all these images that get picked up later on in the book of Revelation. Actually, the main point of Zechariah is pretty clear. It's not hard to understand what the book is actually all about. See, if you were here with us just a couple of weeks ago, you heard Pastor Matt walk us through the book of Haggai, right? And actually, Haggai and Zechariah, they were contemporaries. They would have known each other. They, they spoke to the same group of people at the same time, one after the other, Right? So it was the people of Judah that they were speaking to after they had returned from the exile. They spent 70 years as exiles, as essentially prisoners in Babylon. 70 years they were able to come back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild their life. And, and Haggai tells the people of Judah, you are to put God first, so rebuild the temple and then continue building your homes. Well, Zechariah comes in just a little bit after Haggai and his message is, is tailing on the end of that. He's calling them, well, here's how you are to live now. Now that you have rebuilt the temple, now that you have been put back in the land, what should they do? Well, Zechariah comes in to answer that question. So if you have your Bibles open, you can turn, first of all, just, just to chapter 7. We're going to see sort of the setup to our passage this morning. It comes in chapter 7, verse 1. This is what it says. In the fourth year of King Darius, right, now if you look back, Haggai started in the second year of King Darius. That's when the temple was rebuilt. So it's just two years later. It's not that far. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharazar and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts, uh, house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Okay, so here's kind of the background to our passage. Here's the setup of what's been going on. There's these two men, and they show up at the temple where Zechariah is a prophet, and they show up and they say, we have a question of God. Should we keep on fasting in the fifth month? Right, so what was going on was that in the uh, Jewish community, as exiles, they kept various fasts, right? There was these periods of mourning that they would go through to remember what had all happened in Jerusalem. So the siege that took place, uh, the capturing of the city, the destruction of the temple, they marked these occasions with fasting and mourning. But now they're back in the land and they're wondering, should they continue on with those fasts? Now I know most of you are thinking, wow. I mean, I can't imagine a more relevant question to my life right now than to know more about the post-exilic Jewish community fasts from 2,500 years ago. I mean, I can't believe we are talking about this today. Okay, maybe that's not your reaction, but before you just hit pause and, and, and turn away, let me just reframe the question for, for just a moment. See, here is a group of people, and they had messed up. They had sinned against God, and God had warned them about what was gonna happen. 
He had given them lots of time, hundreds of years. God had sent prophets to them, warning them to turn back, and they ignored God. They sinned. They continued in their idolatry. They're lying. They're cheating. They're, they're ripping off of the poor. They were murdering one another, and there was no sense of justice going on until finally God sent Babylon in to destroy them. They had messed up. They had sinned. And now they were back in the land of Judah, They were back in the city of Jerusalem. The temple had been rebuilt, but they were wondering a different question. Is our sin going to mark us forever? Is this the thing that's going to now define our lives for the rest of time? Do we have any chance of returning to a right relationship with God? Are we going to be restored, or are we going to be whipping ourselves, mourning constantly? Is there any hope that we will actually return. We could ask that in a much more personal sense. After you or or I have sinned, what hope is there? Are we ever going to be able to restore a a relationship with God, or, or do I just keep on have to mourn over my sin again and again and again and again? Do I keep whipping myself? Do I have to do some sort of penance in order to be right with God? Is there any hope that I can be forgiven? See, actually, I think this is a question we need to answer. It's an answer we need to understand. Is there hope for us to actually be restored to God? When we have messed up, is there any hope? Well, our passage this morning is dealing with exactly that. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you just to follow along with me once again. This is Zechariah chapter 8, starting in verse 14. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Here is God's answer to the people. In short, no, they actually don't need to keep the fasts anymore. But God gives a a much fuller and more robust answer than perhaps even they were looking for. He's answering the question, is forgiveness actually possible? How should we live after we have sinned? We are to trust in the sovereign mercy of God. We are to love the truth and rejoice in his grace. So let's just look at that answer and let's just take it one step at a time. It starts off with this call to trust his sovereign mercy. See, verse 14 begins in a bit of a different way than than at least I would expect it to begin. Verse 14, God says, I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent. God begins the answer to their question by first reminding them of what their sin cost. They were 
taken off into exile, Babylon came and utterly destroyed them. Their country, their city, their temple, and and the presence of God left them. God had resided in the temple, but he no longer would because of their sin. That sin brought consequence, right? The relationship they had with God was broken. But God doesn't just bring this up to remind them of what happened. They know, right? They, they, a lot of them had to live through those consequences of what was going on. He actually reminds them that he is the one who was in control of that, right? God says, I purposed to bring disaster. It was the working out of his plan that brought Babylon to destroy them. It wasn't just bad luck. It wasn't just, you know, poor political planning or something like that. No, in fact, it was the working out of God's plan. If you remember all the way back to the book of Lamentations, we actually did a series on Lamentations earlier this year. I know it feels like 10 years ago, but we actually did. It was just a few months ago before COVID. Um, But we looked at the book of Lamentations, and if you remember Lamentations chapter two, it says this. It says, the Lord has done what he purposed. He, carried, he has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. See, the exile wasn't random. It was according to the plan of God. And so what we actually need to do to begin here is just to understand that God is sovereign over all trials, destruction, and even disaster. God is in control over the bad and the horrible things that happen. Now, now let's, let's say at the same time that while God is sovereign over evil, he, does, he is not the author of evil. God is not the one who is doing bad things, far from it. But in fact, God does sometimes allow the evil intention of people's hearts to play out for his good purposes. Right? We see this most clearly in the story of Joseph and his brothers. Right, Joseph's brothers, they, they hate him. They want him dead. And finally, when they get him out on his own, they end up selling him off into slavery. Good riddance, they think. Well, in fact, God used the evil purposes of their hearts in order to save thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Right? They meant it for evil. God intended it for good. In fact, it's the exact same thing with the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar came and he intended nothing but to destroy the people of Judah. Yet God had another purpose for that. God was going to bring them and he was going to punish their sin, but he was also going to cleanse this nation from their sins. In fact, God would hold Nebuchadnezzar accountable for his own sins as well. See, it wasn't random. God had a plan for all of this. As many theologians have said before, evil and suffering is nothing more than the unwitting servant of God. It's not as if these things were out of his control. And sometimes we want to almost shrink back from that kind of truth, don't we? We want to say, no, 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 God has nothing to do with any of that. But actually, we can't do that here. Verse 14 is pretty clear. Jerusalem was destroyed because God had intended that. And I'm actually going to say, in the end of the day, it's a good thing. Let me give you two reasons why I think that's actually good news, that God is sovereign over these things. Number one, it's because it means that the suffering that you and I are going to go through 
is measured out by the hand of God and he will not allow it to go any further than he wants. You will never face unrestrained suffering or evil in your life. God is sovereign over all things and that includes our sorrows and our pain. It includes things like a global pandemic as well. You know, if we want to just be real practical, it means that God is sovereign currently right now over the pandemic that we are facing, right? This pandemic will go no further than God himself has allowed it to go. And as I have come to know my God, let me tell you that is such great comfort. As I've come to know the character of God, I know he is not reckless in his plan. He is not flippant or uncaring in the things that he does, and this shall go no further than his good purposes deem it necessary. Actually, God being in control of this is good news. But let me give you a second reason as well, and this one comes directly from our text. Verse 15, God says, So again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear not. So here's why he brought this up to begin with. It is because with the same overarching sovereignty that he had that brought them into exile, so now with that same power and determination, God is going to bring good to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. God is determined to bring goodness and mercy to them. See, this is why we need to see that first half clearly. See, If God is sovereign even over evil, suffering, and disaster, it means that evil, suffering, and disaster cannot interfere with the plan of God and his determination to bless his people. That is good news. That means the mercy of God will not be thwarted along the way. You can imagine Zechariah talking to the exiles and saying, how sure are you that you went into exile? And they're standing there like, we just got back. We're pretty sure we went there. And he says, that's how sure you can be that God will bring goodness to you. As sure as you are that yesterday happened, that is how sure you can count on the mercy of God. And hear me, that is a promise for us as well. See, God was determined to bring goodness to Jerusalem. And it's more than just simply protecting this tiny new fledgling nation. No, in fact, God did bring goodness into Jerusalem in Jesus Christ. Jesus walked through Judah. He came to Jerusalem and he came to bring the goodness and the mercy of God. Yet by the plan of God, he was hated. He was despised. He was ignored. And in the greatest act of human sinfulness, he was put to death. Yet this was still part of God's plan. Because in that action, God has brought forward the greatest act of mercy and goodness and grace the world has ever known. Jesus died for my sins, for anyone who would come before him, place their faith in him, that they would be saved. Jesus died in our place to pay the punishment for our sins. That is a promise for us. So what do you do after you have sinned? After I've messed up my life, is God just going to cancel me out? 
Actually, the call is trust in his sovereign, unstoppable mercy in Jesus. Because God is determined in Jesus Christ to bless and forgive and show mercy to sinners like us. With as much confidence I have that yesterday took place, I can be confident that Jesus will forgive my sins. For any who would turn to him, repent of their sins, confess them before God, turn away from them, and trust in Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. We are given this promise that we are forgiven by God. That is the confidence we can have. We have no need to be afraid. Trust in his sovereign mercy. So if you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, you know what? Yeah, that's all great, but I've been gone for a long time. Maybe these past few months in quarantine have been a real struggle for you. You've fallen back into all kinds of patterns of sin, and, and, and you're stuck in a rut, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I don't really know if I can get, I don't think I can go back to God anymore. Maybe it's been years. You've been wandering away. You've made a lot of mistakes and you're saying to yourself, you know, I can't just go back to God. I've, I've clearly got to do something. Hear this word today. God is determined in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. Turn to Jesus even today. Confess your sins, and he will forgive and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Trust in his sovereign mercy, and then stand up and live for him. This is exactly what Zechariah goes on to say. Look back at verse 16. He says, these are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Zechariah goes on to describe what the people of Judah should be doing now. Now that God has forgiven them, how then should they act? And hear me, let's always make sure we get that order correct. This isn't a command in order to earn God's mercy. This isn't do enough good things and then God will accept you. No, it's actually because God has accepted me, now I can respond in obedience to him. And so Zechariah says, here's what you are to do. Love the truth. That's how he ends verse 19. Love the truth. He calls his people to speak to one another truthfully that would mark them as the people of God, speaking the truth, not simply speaking it, but also acting on it. He said, render in your gates judgments that are true. The city gates were essentially, you know, town hall. They were the courtrooms of the ancient world. And so God is saying, from, from how you speak to one another, how you treat one another in your personal life, all the way up through your society to the very courtrooms, let truth mark you as a people. The people of God are marked by a commitment to the truth. Even Jesus calls his disciples to do the same in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about oaths and he says this. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He's saying we actually don't need to be taking an oath. We don't have to swear by something. Why? Well, it's because every single thing we say ought to be the truth. When we say yes, it's because we mean yes. When we say no, it's because we mean no. Right? This is how we are marked as a Christian people. We are to tell, we are to speak the truth. 
Is that what marks you? In one sense, it's such an easy thing to say, right? Just speak the truth, say the truth. Yet it's it's often so difficult to actually live that out. Your boss comes in and says, you know, do you have that report? It's a lot easier to say, oh yeah, I'm just about finished it. It's easier to say that than the truth, which is, oh, I actually forgot about that. I'll get started right away. You know, it's amazing how often we think to ourselves, lying just seems like the easier or the better option, right? Or or you can think about, you know, the classic question of, of a wife looking in the mirror and saying to her husband, does this make me look fat? And you freeze for just a second and you think, what am I supposed to say here? Right now, look, I, I know all the jokes that, that go along with this kind of scenario, but can I just be, give you some, some genuine marriage advice for a second? Husbands, speak the truth in that moment. Speak the truth. Let truth be so committed in your marriage that even at that moment, you're going to say something true. Now hear me, that's not an excuse to be a jerk, right? That's not an excuse that you can say something insulting. You can say something a lot along the lines of, you know what, I prefer the other one. I don't think that one fits you quite right. But let truth be heard in your marriage. There is no healthy marriage that is based on lying to one another, even to protect feelings, all right? Like I said, this is not an excuse to to simply be a jerk. Look at verse 17 again. It says, do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. See, here's the truth. You can say something that is factually true while still devising evil in your heart. You can say something that's true with the pure intention of just hurting someone else. That is not what we're talking about. God actually cares about your heart behind speaking the truth. See, that's the difference between saying something true because it's the rule you have to follow and saying something true because you love the truth. Look, a rule book can always be found with loopholes. But whatever you love, you will give all of yourself to it. So love the truth. God cares about your heart. In fact, verse 17 ends with a reminder God hates dishonesty. God hates lying, even in the New Testament. Do you remember Acts chapter five? Ananias and Sapphira. It's this couple, and and they come before the apostles and they say, hey, we sold a field, here's all the money. And God strikes them dead. Why? Because they lied, right? God actually takes this seriously. As much as we give, you know, all kinds of rationalizations for why it's okay that we lied this time, It's just a little white lie. I'm doing it to spare someone's feelings. I'm doing it to stay out of trouble. I'm doing it, you know, because it's only really just a half truth. We have a thousand excuses for why our lying isn't a problem, and yet God says he hates dishonesty. So let those of us who have been forgiven by God love the truth. But hear me. It's not simply that we're called to love the truth because it's going to make things easier in your life. It's going to make your relationships better. It will. It's not even just that there are consequences to lying, because there are. If you've ever tried to rebuild broken trust, you know how big a deal it is. No, actually, God gives this command because he loves the truth. 
He speaks truth, he acts in truth and justice, and we are called to reflect his words, his actions, and his heart. Our words should be truthful because his words are truthful. Jesus prays, John 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. God acts in truth and justice, Psalm 111, the works of his hands are faithful and just, they are true and just. So our actions ought to reflect that. The reason God calls them to love the truth is not because he just wants them all to get along. It is because they are going to be a representation of himself. God's word will be heard through the lips of his people. And hear me, this is our calling as well. People are going to hear the words of Jesus through your lips. They're going to see the action, the kindness, the mercy and the grace of Jesus through your actions. They're going to see the character of God through your character. So let us love the truth. Let us have a reputation of telling the truth, whether it hurts us or not, so that we can reflect the character of the one who has saved us. Love it because the truth points to Jesus. Love it because it is what God loves. Love it because it produces peace and justice. Love it because it shows the character of God to others. How do we live after we have sinned? Let us love the truth. So what do we do when we sin? When we've drifted away from God? We go before him. We repent of our sins and we trust in the unstoppable mercy of God. We love the truth and finally we celebrate his grace. Look back at verse 18. Zechariah says, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Right, here is the answer to the question they were asking all the way back in chapter seven. Should they keep fasting? And God says, your fasting will be turned into feasting. Your mourning will be turned into celebration. And you might wonder, okay, but but how do you make that change? How does that even happen? Are they supposed to just forget all the bad things that they did? Are they supposed to rewrite their history? The answer is no. No, God doesn't say you're going to entirely forget what happened. He's saying those moments will be so entirely overwhelmed by the grace of God that when you think of them, you will celebrate God's goodness to you. Look, if you're, if you're here and you're a Christian, you've probably already begun to understand what that looks like. You can think back on your life. Think back before you, you knew Christ. Or even just think back on all the mistakes you have made. And you begin to see how God has led you to himself. How even even the worst moments in your life was actually God leading you back towards himself, teaching you more about his grace, his mercy, his patience toward wayward sinners like me. When I look back on all all the mistakes I've made, the the sin I have made, I, I, I am not convinced they were good by any means. In fact, I am far more convicted of my sins now. But what I am convinced of is this. I am overwhelmed by the grace God has given. 
I'm overwhelmed by how much God has taught me and lead and has led me and guided me throughout this whole time. And I can't help but celebrate the goodness of God as I think back on all the mistakes I've made and the mercy and the grace he has given to me. See, we see this already in our life, but the truth is it will be yet far greater. Paul writes 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The truth is when we are in heaven with Jesus, we will look back on all the things that have happened and we will say all of them were tiny, light, and insignificant next to the weight of the glory of Jesus Christ. We will be overwhelmed by his grace. We will celebrate the goodness of God for all of eternity. My failures have made the greatness of God more clearly seen. Now that doesn't mean that we should go off and continue sinning. By no means, if you remember Romans chapter six, that would be missing the whole point of forgiveness. We are called now in our obedience to now showcase the greatness of God. Therefore, Ezekiel, or <laughs> Zechariah says, love the truth and peace. Let his goodness be seen both in the forgiveness of your sins and in your obedience now. Let us celebrate his grace. So what do we do when we sin? How should we react? We go to God trusting in his sovereign mercy in Jesus. We confess our sins, we repent of what we have done, we turn to him in trust. We love the truth more and more each and every day in our words and our actions and we joyfully celebrate the goodness of our God because the mercy of God is greater than our sin. God has not canceled us out because we got it wrong. God is steadfast and merciful towards us. Let us run to him. Let me say this. As God has extended mercy to us, let us extend it to others as well. We started off by saying, what should we do when people sin, when people mess up? How should we react? We should love the truth of God's grace so much that we would long to extend it to others. Not seeking to cancel people out because God has not canceled us. We would love the truth of God's mercy so much that we would show mercy to others. When we sinned, God loved us so much. He sent Jesus to die for our sins so that any who would trust in him would be saved. Let us rejoice in that. Let's pray together. Father, oh Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Lord, we did not deserve it. We have not earned your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, yet because of your love, you have given to us Jesus Christ that we might be saved, that we might be forgiven for our sins. Father, help us to trust in that each and every day. Lord, give us hearts that love your truth more and more, that we would be delighted to, to speak the truth of your name. Lord, that we would act in such a way that represents your character well. Father, as we think back on all the things that we've done, 
Lord, I pray, would your greatness overshadow all of them? Would it be that we look back and see your grace and your kindness and your goodness to us, and Lord, help us to celebrate what you have done. Lord, you are worthy of all honor and praise. We ask these things in your name. Amen.